0: Well, good morning, everybody. I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point Church, and um, thank you for being here in our sanctuary in person, socially distanced, mask wearing. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. Glad we can do that as we seek to get back going. Joining us online, thank you for jumping in and joining us there. And you're definitely social distanced, but we just want to say a special hello to you. Can you guys in the room do me a favor? And that is, if you're... um, uh, if you're tracking along with anything I'm saying, instead of smiling, which you can do, give me a head nod somewhere along the line so I can know that you're with me. If you're really feeling it, give me just even a little hand raise, like, mm-hmm. it doesn't even need to be big, but just a little, yeah, a little, like, they have raised the roof, whatever you need to do. Uh, online, if you can click the heart or like button or whatever, i would love to be engaged with you as well. Thank you. We really appreciate you guys joining us online. Grateful to have you with us. So we'd love to have the engagement and the interaction. Uh, Well, I am reminded this morning as we begin a brand new series called Deeply Undivided, I'm reminded of a a movie that I... I Loved when I was younger. And so I'm going to date myself even by talking about it, but it is rooted in history and it's rooted in 1971 in Alexandria, Virginia. There was a high school, T.C. Williams, in Alexandria, Virginia, and their football team was tasked with integrating blacks and whites together onto the same football team. And there was a a great coach of this team that had led the team previously, an all white team previously to great success, and now they were forced face to face with the, the struggle of integration on a football team. The movie is called Remember the Titans, and I think some of you have seen it. Great movie, and some may have not seen it. We'll forgive you, that's okay. But in that movie, you see the struggle between the, the talented black young men, the talented white young men trying to come together to figure out how can we, and can we indeed, integrate and pull this off. Denzel Washington plays Coach Boone, who's the black coach brought in, forced to be brought in to help with this program, and the tension is not far below the surface. And they go to camp, if you've ever seen the movie, they go to camp, and there's great tensions at camp, and Coach Boone is hard-nosed with it. He is direct with it, and he is running these guys three-a-day practices in full gear. They're sweating like crazy. I'm sure the movie was just like real life, right? And finally, there's a there's a scene in the camp. I think in day one or day two of the camp, where the two kind of leaders of both the black young men and the white young men come together, Julius and Gary, and they have a moment where they stop and face each other with anger in their hearts. And Gary, the, the white captain, is so angry with Julius for his selfishness. That, you don't ever, you don't ever even block for my guys who are coming by. Just do something to which Julius says, you know what? You've never blocked for my guys either. I'm going to just take mine, okay? To which Gary says, you know, that is the worst attitude I have ever seen. And then Julius stares at him and says, attitude reflects leadership. Captain, great movie moment, right? I'm sure that was just like that was in real life. The next day, Coach Boone, Denzel Washington, wakes these guys up early in the morning before the sun rises. They get them out of bed, and they run hard a mile, two miles, and they, they end up, and the movie scene shows that they end up with the, the fog lifting and the, the music kind of crescendoing in the background. They end up at the, the battlefield of Gettysburg, not far from here. And there, Coach Boone has an incredible speech in which he says to these young boys, he said, boys, Listen. Listen to the souls of the dead who cry out from this very ground. The hatred that poured through their veins as the hot lead cut through each of them. Tens of thousands hating each other. Dying on this very battlefield. You are fighting that same fight right now. And the moment is left poignant. What are you going to do? This is where this fight ends up. We kill each other. What are you going to do? What will be the future of the T.C. Williams football team? Will our differences divide us? Or is it possible that a world exists where our differences deepen us and not just divide us? In the movie and in real life, that team goes on to have an incredible season. In the movie, they go undefeated and win the state championship. But for me, the question for all of us today, for the church, for us as our families, for us as individual people struggling with what we see. There are forces that are pounding on us to divide. Forces that are pounding on you every time you open your computer, every time you scroll through social media, every time you think about someone else's political view or their response to the pandemic or the racial issues that are facing us today. At every turn almost, there are issues pounding on us. See someone different than you are. Notice that their views are off from yours. Please focus on the division. Please recognize that you're a different skin color. Please recognize that you have a different political ideology. Please recognize that you see church differently. Please notice the divisions. But there is a world, and I'm convinced of it. I'm convinced of it. There is a world that exists where differences deepen us and not just divide us. But I'm also convinced that getting to that world is not as easy as I would like it to be. And that getting to that world requires something of you and requires something of me that is going to be a daily and regular sacrifice. Where I wanna take you this morning is in the Old Testament book of Psalms. It's kind of in the middle of your Bible. You're welcome to grab a Bible in the pew near you or look it up on your phone, or I'm gonna throw the verses up here on the screen as well. So if you're watching online, you can see it pop up here. If you get really close to your computer, if the words might be small. But we are gonna jump into a Psalm called Psalm 121. This Psalm, this um, kind of song that was written, was a song that was written for the nation of Israel. Um, It's called a song of ascents, meaning that when the nation of Israel was going up to Jerusalem to worship, they would often sing this song. They would review this because Jerusalem was up on the mountain and they would kind of keep their eyes up as they went. And so Psalm 121 begins this way. I lift my eyes to the mountains. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. To the mountains. Now, I'm going to pause it right there. I want to ask you in your own mind's eye and in your own heart right now, I want you to get a picture of the mountains, right? I want you to get a picture last time you were there or the last social media feed you had. I want you to get a picture right now of the mountain. I want you to get a picture of your mountain. I want you to get a picture of your future that you would love to, to climb to, the, the, the exploration. The mountains that for you and for me are full of both adventure and risk beauty and mystery, full of challenge and opportunity, and full of danger and disappointment. The mountain of your future career, the mountain of your next step if you're a young adult. The mountain of your marriage relationship and the mountain of what will our nation look like as we try to recover from the place that we are in. See the mountain and see what could be and imagine on both sides the danger and the beauty, the challenge and the opportunity that presents itself in the mountain. And as the psalmist is standing there, lifting his eyes up to the mountain, a place full of adventure and danger, he asks a question. A question comes to his mind. It's an immediate question. Where does my help come from? It's as if he sees in that mountain both the danger and the challenge and the beauty that lies ahead of your future and ours and his. And the immediate question... Where does my help come from? Because I think there's something in this that I think this trip is going to be a trip that requires help. I'm going to need some help, and I need to ask the question, where do I get my help because I need it on this journey? As I look up, where is my help going to come from? And then he says this, verse 2, he says, My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. It's as if he's saying, there's no one who will know this mountain path better than the one who has put it here. There's no one who will know this place better than the creator of the world. There's no one who, is, who will know where I'm going better than the one who's made it. There's no one who will be able to, to visit with me in the beauty of the sunrise. In the moments when the sun comes up and I'm in the mountains and I'm quiet and alone and I feel the freshness of the cool morning and the promise of a new day and the hope that I feel when that sun rises and I'm ready to take it on, there's no one else who is closer to me there than the one who has orchestrated that entire environment for me. And there's no one who is closer to me when night falls and the loneliness sets in. And I realize that I'm not traveling on this journey with someone that I love anymore because they died years ago. And the people that I want to travel with sometimes throw things at me and hurt me and don't always agree with me. And the loneliness of night is real. And the fear of the noises that go bump in the night and the worry anxiety of what will come in the next month or two. There is no one who knows the night like the one who has created and allowed it to be. And as the psalmist looks at the mountain and the role of nature and all that is created. It's as if he says, the one who has orchestrated this entire stage in which we operate knows it better than anyone else. And so I'm going to lean into the one who has created both the day and the night and has allowed even things which he could prevent. I'm going to get my help from the creator of the universe. And then it's like he's saying, I'm about ready to take my first step. I'm about ready to go and start walking up the mountain. Verse 3, he says it this way. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. What a great picture of the journey. He'll not let your foot slip. Like I don't know about you, but as I walk through the woods sometimes, and my family can attest to it, there are times when we've traveled on vacation and gone through some great hikes, but I have slipped on my fair share of wet rocks when we're trying to cross the stream (laughs) to no small amusement to my family. (laughs) I have seen people slip on the moss and the trees that lie down on the path and think that we can get up on them, and all of a sudden we're gone, and our foot slips, and it happens. But here, what a beautiful promise, what a beautiful picture. I mean, he, he's not going to let your foot slip. He's going to watch over you. Even if you plant on some, you know, slippery ground, he's going to watch over you and you don't have to worry. Even at night, you don't have to worry about the bear, the mountain lion, you don't have to worry about anything because the one who watches over you will not slumber. He's not going to fall asleep when you do. And that journey is going to take a while. So you can just rest assured that the God who made this mountain will watch over you on your journey. Isn't that beautiful? And then let me ask you, does that feel like real life to you? Does that feel like real life to you? I mean, come on for a minute, let's just push into the psalmist for a minute. Let's ask him some real questions about life and say, but but I have a question. Because when someone I love died of a disease a couple of years ago, like that, I don't know, but that felt like my foot slipped a little bit. I mean, I don't know when someone has deeply disappointed me and I'm in pain, like, I'm not sure, but that feels like my foot has slipped. When I have done something that I now regret and I've hurt people unintentionally, I don't know, but that feels like my foot kind of slipped there. When someone has fired me from a job and I don't know where I'm going or I'm experiencing pain of the unknown and my family is falling apart, my marriage isn't what it should be, I mean, I don't know, but. It sure seems like somebody was slumbering. This promise feels like a heaven promise that doesn't meet earth. This is great, except if you live on earth, then it doesn't work. But if you live in heaven, then it's good. It's almost what it feels like when you really drill it down and push into it. Now, the psalmist gives me another perspective in verse 4. It's right up here. He says, indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And I think, whoa. He who watches over Israel. What he's saying is God, this God of the mountain, this God who has made the world, he watches over Israel. I thought, really? You know Israel's history, psalmist? I mean, do you know what's already happened by the time you've written this psalm? Do you understand what's already happened to the nation of Israel? There's been incest. Rebellion. Rape, murder, idolatry. Priests have left their positions. They have created spiritual adultery. They've given up their posts and given the nation to whatever direction they want to go. Do you realize what has happened? The deep rebellion and hurt and pain that has gone on for generation upon generation, written and recorded in the Bible. And you're saying the God who watches over Israel, you're putting all of their pain in a bigger context. You're telling me that just because there's pain doesn't mean that God doesn't watch over. And this word, this Hebrew word for watch over, ends up appearing six times in this little verse. And what I read when I read this idea that God watches over Israel is that even though I experience and you experience pain in this life, sometimes very significant and deep personal pain, it doesn't mean that the God of the universe has stopped watching over. It means that my pain must be taken in the context that God is still watching over, that the one who allows what he could prevent is still over it all. He is still watching over you, even though as you walk along the path, there are going to be thorns that pull at your feet. There are going to be times you are going to twist your ankle, maybe even break something, but you still have the opportunity to keep going. And if when you're on a family hike in the woods, you end up stopping every time that someone has a leg cramp or scratches their leg on a stone or a pricker, if you stop at every moment of pain and inconvenience and challenge, you are never, ever, ever going to get where you need to go. That even the most beautiful walk through the woods is sometimes filled with the mystery and challenge and danger of those opportunities. So the context, the context that the psalmist paints is that God is still in control. The one who doesn't sleep has allowed even this pain, even in the nation of Israel. He is a God who watches over. He watches over. He doesn't reach in and stop everything, but your pain is in a broader context. Your hurt and your fear is in a broader context. Your pain does not mean God is absent, and it doesn't mean he has stopped doing what he does, watching over. He did that for Israel, and he will do that for you on your journey up this mountain. The psalmist continues in verse 5. He says, the Lord, again, watches over you. The Lord is their shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. Look at the the comparison, the the sun and the moon. He's saying all the time. That's his way of saying all the time. During the day and during the night, God is going to be watching over you. It's never going to be a time when he's not in that position of seeing you. Verse 7, the Lord will keep you from all harm. That's our word again, to watch over, keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and then he makes this eternal, now and forevermore, now and forevermore. You can be assured that both now and forever, this God of the mountain is the God who sees it and watches and all of your life, including the incredibly challenging and potentially divisive moments are in the context of a God who sees all and watches over all. This is the God of the universe. He gives us a place to look up to. So the psalmist begins and says, I'm going to look up to the mountain. Where does my help come from? I'm going to look up. Where does my help come from? This idea of looking up is not only recorded in Psalm 121. In fact, this idea of looking up is so central to what the Bible teaches that it shows up several different times in the scriptures. So when you think about a world that could deepen rather than divide, this idea that starts with our vision and where where our eyes are is the starting point. You see, in the nation of Israel, they were um, they went through a, a wilderness wandering. They had to they left Egypt and they were trying to figure out where they go. And and somewhere in the book of Numbers, if you've ever read Numbers, and it's okay if you haven't, it's not just a, a program for your your MacBook, but Numbers is actually a book in the Bible, and that book they actually recount some of the story of the nation of Israel leaving um, the nation of Egypt. And in there there becomes a moment where Israel is complaining to Moses. They're saying, Moses, this is so hard, we're in such a hard place. Like we have to eat the same food all the time. We would have been better off in Israel. And, and they complain. And finally, God hears their complaint. And he's, he's saying, what? You, I'm sorry, are you saying that you're going to die here in the desert? Well, let me just help that along. Here are some venomous snakes for you. And the, Seriously, and the venomous snakes killed people in the camp of Israel. To which then they were like, okay, wait, wait, the manna wasn't that bad. Can we have the bad food instead of the bad snakes? They complained to Moses, and Moses appeals to God. And this is what God says to Moses, recorded in, in Numbers chapter 21, verse, verse 8. He says, so make a snake and put it on a pole, and anyone who is bitten can look up at it, can look at it and live. Here's the picture I'm going to give you, Moses, something you're going to plant in the ground. You're going to make this snake, this bronze thing. You're going, to, you're going to stick it in the ground. You're going to have everyone train their eyes to look up, not down, at their pain. And when they look up, they'll be saved. When they look up to this thing, they're going to see what could be. And then in the New Testament, John, a follower of Jesus, picks up on this exact same idea. And before the most famous passage in the Scripture, John 3:16, that says, For God so loved the world, That he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Right before that, John says this He says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Just like that snake was lifted up, so we're going to lift up and we're going to put on a hill, we're going to put on a Mount Calvary. A king who will be crucified, that anyone and everyone who would look at him would be saved, that anyone who would look up at Jesus will find their salvation and their hope, that anyone who is walking through this journey of life and through the mountain path that they are on and sees all the junk around them getting them down, if they would only look up at the mount, where their help comes from, they will see and they will find that there is a Savior. There is one who always watches over, one who is keen to care through the day and night, who will be your North Star, will guide you, will save you, will lead you, who will never leave you. This idea of looking up is so, so critical to a world where division and fighting doesn't have to divide us, but can deepen us. And so I have this question for you and this question for me. It starts with this. How's your vision today? Today. How's your vision today? What are you seeing today? Are you you seeing the things that are scraping at your ankles? Are you seeing the divisions around you? Are you frustrated? Are you tired? Are you worn out? Do you wish things could just get back to the way they were? Do you wish we wouldn't have to and they wouldn't have to? Do you wish they would stop and they would start? Do you wish we could do less and do more? And Has your, your, your vision been brought down to all the junk that's wrapping around your ankles and slowing you down and tripping you up? I get it. That's part of the journey. I'm with you. That is the journey on the mountain. It is a normal experience to be tripped up, to be in pain, to be hurt by people and what they say and what they do, to be afraid of what could be and afraid of changes that you can't control. That's a part of the journey. It's a hard part of the journey, but it is part of it. Now, what are you looking at? Now, let me ask this question. What happens when our eyes drop? What happens to you and what happens to our world when our eyes drop down? In Proverbs 29, 18, we read there that without vision, the people perish. This is the old King James Version. Without vision, the people perish. What what Solomon is saying there is that if you you live in a world where you can't see past the current pain that you're in, if you can't get your eyes up a little bit, you're going to perish. And the reason you're going to perish is because your world will become too small. Three things happen when our eyes come down. The first thing is our world becomes too small. When we feel threatened and in pain, we want to create a world that we can control. And we end up, listen, we end up putting something else at the top of the mountain. What ends up at the top of the mountain is my comfort or convenience. What ends up at the top of the mountain is going to be my future job. What ends up at the top of the mountain is my picture of what the church should look like. What ends up at the top of the mountain is my perfect picture of what my family should look like. And we look at that, and that becomes our guiding north star. But that becomes an incredibly small world, and we end up suffocating in that black hole of narcissism that ends up sucking us into ourselves. We create a world where there's no mystery there's no challenge. If you're a Republican, don't you want Democrats around? If you're a Democrat, don't you want Republicans around? Because they annoy you, yes, but they sharpen you, right? If you're, if you're someone who believes this way about church or this way about church, don't you want the other people around? Because don't they help us all stay out of just our little lane as if we've somehow just gotten it perfect our own way? without vision the people perish, if we put the wrong thing at the top of the mountain, we create a world that is so small that we end up suffocating ourselves and we get the very thing we want. We think we get peace, but we end up with emptiness. I want peace, but I end up alone. I want peace, but I end up bitter when my world becomes too small. Don't put that wrong thing at the top of the mountain. When our eyes go down, the world becomes small. Secondly, Differences divide, not deepen. That's what happens. Secondly, differences divide, not deepen. When our eyes go down, man, all I'm seeing is the stuff that's getting in the way between you and me. I see you as someone who's a mask wearer or a non-mask wearer, someone who's a Republican or someone who's a Democrat, someone who's of this skin color or that skin color. And that's what differences do. They pigeonhole you and pigeonhole you, and now we're divided. I'm on this side of the football team, on that side of the football team, and attitude reflect leadership, captain, right, we ain't going to figure this one out, so let's just fight it through. Differences will divide when our eyes go down. And thirdly, thirdly, we end up in a cancel people culture. We end up saying, those people who are different than me, don't need to listen to them anymore. Don't even need to read their stuff anymore because they said one wrong thing, one thing they didn't agree with me. Canceled, you're out, and let me kind of create an echo chamber that becomes a part of my new world. Our world becomes small, differences divide, and we end up canceling people. What happens? Conversely, What happens when we keep our eyes up? The exact opposite. We have a bigger world. We have a bigger world that recognizes that there are people on the other side of the political aisle, the other side of the spiritual aisle, the racial aisle, that can help us. We can see in a brand new way. These differences, instead of dividing us, they deepen us. And instead of cancel culture, instead of canceling that, we realize, you know what? Underneath that canceling is that I cancel people who end up creating too much pain in my life. When I keep my eyes up, I recognize that the pain that I experience is in a context that God watches over me and watches over you, that my pain is put in context. We are moved, ultimately, when our eyes go up. When our eyes go up, they go up not just to the mountain of Psalm 121, they go up not only to the Numbers 21 with the bronze snake, but they go up to the Mount, to Mount Calvary. They go up, especially if you call yourself a Christian now, they go up to the cross if you want to know what it takes to be deeply undivided, it begins with our vision to look up and keep our eyes up through the pain of the junk that gathers around our ankles, to look at the cross of Jesus Christ. And as Philippians 2 reminds us, Jesus, who was in very nature God, decided, committed, resolved, that being like God was something that wasn't to be grasped. He gave himself up for humanity. He recognized that even though he was in very nature God, he didn't fight to hold that which was rightly his. Willingly gave up, and this incredible humility moved in. Where my relationship with you, and hopefully your relationship with me, is built on the vision of Jesus Christ. That there is a world, there's a community, there's a society... There's a church where racial differences don't divide, where political ideologies don't divide, where pandemic responses don't divide. Because these gospel issues, these issues, when our eyes are centered up on the cross, keep our eyes in the right place. I'm convinced that if you want a world where differences deepen rather than divide, keep your eyes up to where your help comes from. Your help doesn't come from politics. Your help doesn't come from your family, your future career, your incredible gifts and skills that you have. It doesn't even come from health. It doesn't come from never arguing or never having differences of opinion. That is not your North Star. If you want a journey where differences will deepen your walk, deepen your faith, and deepen your community, it begins and ends with keeping our eyes up on the cross, to begin your day, even your day tomorrow, by saying, God, help me. God, help me. That I can see the people who I engage with on social, that I can see the people that I engage with in my family. I can see the people in my church through the humility, the reconciliation, the forgiveness of Christ on the cross. That that is my north star. That Christ's love compels me to love you as he loved me. If you want a world like that, keep your eyes up. Keep your eyes up to where your help really comes from. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to be here this morning. For those of us gathered, what a great um, gift it is to be able to be back together again in this space. We don't take that for granted. We thank you for that opportunity. For those online, we are so grateful for our friends online, who have chosen to tune in and are engaged in so many meaningful ways with us. We pray for your continued leadership in our lives, for the pain that we feel, for the fear that we feel, and for the the challenges and stress that we have. I pray for those who are in pain today, whether from health concerns or relational family concerns or from just anxiety and pressure of this world that we're in right now. Boy, we're on this journey up the mountain, and it right now is hard. We recognize that. But we know the maker of the mountain allows these things, even though you could eliminate them. And so we put our pain in context. Help us to keep our eyes up on the one who made this mountain, the one who has created this world and sent his son because he loves us. So I pray for us this morning, if we don't know what that means or what that will look like, to keep our eyes on Jesus. pray you give us the courage to have those conversations about what it looks like to follow him in these days. So I pray that, especially for those who call themselves Christian today, that you would help us with courage, with consistency, with care, to keep our North Star, keep our eyes up, start our day with a prayer a reminder that we are gospel-centered people. We are moved by the cross and the attitude of Jesus Christ. May our eyes go up to the mountain of Mount Calvary where our Savior died for us. Give us the courage to love well in these days.